so um, good evening, everybody. This is Catherine Lambrecht, Illinois Mycological Association. Proudly starting our 50th year this year. Uh, just was talking with Greg Mueller how that all started. Uh, he wasn't there at the beginning. I wasn't there at the beginning. And the people we knew were there at the beginning. I don't think we see so much anymore. Maybe they've all gone on to heaven. But 50 years is a long time. And uh, we'll, we'll acknowledge that as the year goes on. So um, our program tonight is with Greg Mueller, who is coming to us from Southern Illinois tonight. He is preparing to retire and is more retired than I even thought he would be. <laughs> so I'm gonna, Greg, I'm gonna turn it over to you because you know you better than I know you. Isn't that weird? But he and I, just so as an aside, he and I began probably eight months apart, maybe I think with IMA. And we were like the babies here, the babies, like really, everybody else was like 20 years plus older than us in the club, at least. So anyway, Greg, I think you have, yes, you do, you have it all. So I'm going to uh, turn it over to you. Well, thanks, Catherine. Really excited to be here tonight. Um, excited to be part of the 50th anniversary of IMA programs. Um, <clears throat> Yes, as, as Catherine said, I wasn't here at the very beginning, but for quite a while, we joined IMA when we moved to Chicago in 1985. So I guess that's about somewhere around 37 years. Um, so I think a few of the original folks were still around and, you know, we watched IMA grow and morph and change. And it's really excited to see, you know, that it's still going strong with now, what, 72 people um on this particular call and more coming in so uh it, it's great to see that the the club is doing well and um that's very exciting what i want to talk today is kind of talking about um well not kind of talking about um some of the work i've been involved with and others involved with uh fungal conservation and tell a little bit if i can think of how to weave it in how things have changed over the last 37 years um, since since I was with, with IMA. So let me see if I can share my screen and get this show on the road. Where'd it go to? There it is. So I think we're, we're good, right? So, Whoops, before I get started, I wanted to show this picture. Um, this is something that Joe McFarland sent me yesterday. And I love that the person put it on this receipt because you can see the date here. It's like those uh, proof of life things for people that have been um, uh, kidnapped. Uh, we actually have a date here to show when this was collected. So it was collected yesterday, March 5th. Joe tells me, at least for the for his knowledge of 30 years being in Southern Illinois, that this predates or is the earliest collection of morels by about 10 days. The earliest he ever remembers of them popping up is the 15th. So, you know, I think the whole state is 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 um, undergoing a really early spring. Um, we'll see how it continues. Um, it was 72 degrees down here today, but it's going to cool off so 
we'll see whether it um, maintains and I'm looking forward to getting out to see if I can find somewhere else. I'm not a great morel collector, but um, I'm a great morel eater. So we'll see how this proceeds. But that's not what we're talking about today. As I said, we want to talk about um, some um, kind of developments in the conservation field. And one of the things that's really exciting is that fungi are all over the place right now in the news and the press and everything. So for the first time, as far as I know, we had a cover story in Science Magazine, which is like the leading science journal um, on the planet. And so we had that. And then we had a report from the Intergovernmental Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So it's kind of the equivalent of the, um, the uh, climate change, the International uh, Platform for Climate Change. Um, so it's a big deal. Until recently, they didn't even acknowledge that fungi existed, but here we had a, a cover story. So I was really excited to see that. Um, it's been all over the press. So this was the story in New York Times, in The Guardian, but also in more um, pop culture. So this was a story in Vogue last year, I think it was, uh, where they were talking about fashion uh, influenced um, by fungi. So this beautiful, um, um, uh, um, what is it? Uh, Troy Captain, no, a uh, Versicolor um, mushroom uh, dress, which I thought was really cool. And then, of course, Last of Us series is all to do with these um, mushrooms um, overtaking um, overtaking people. So it's all over the place right now. Fungi are really a hot item, and they should be right because there are a lot of them. Right. So the estimate for number of fungi on the planet is somewhere between two and four million species. And these species are super, super important. Right. They play all kinds of ecological roles and roles for humans. Right. So they're important as decomposers. They're important as pathogens both for plants and animals and humans if you've ever had athlete's foot um, <clears throat> or some of these other fungal diseases um, they form symbioses with lots of different organisms most famous are probably the mycorrhizas um, some of them are poisonous to eat um, others are now used as um, supplements dietary supplements they're important edible fungi um, they're involved with regulating um, carbon sequestration, nutrient flow, they're, um, and there are major decomposers. So the fungi play a critical role for all kinds of things. And in reality, life would not exist as we know it without fungi. So when we see headlines like this one, this is not new. This is 1991 about disappearing mushrooms, another mass extinction. It should cause some pause. But it also shouldn't be super surprising because fungi face the same threats as animals and plants. Habitat loss, loss of symbiotic hosts, pollution, unsustainable use, climate change. All those things that face uh, animals and plants and impact them also impact fungi. So the, the um, discipline of fungal conservation is really an interdisciplinary um, discipline um, combining science, communication, and engagement, planning, and politics. So it's not just science. There is a science base to it, 
but we also have to take that science and put it to use. And the goal was to have the importance of fungi recognized by the public, conservation community, land managers, and policymakers to ensure that fungi are included in conservation actions and funding so they can be conserved. Now, one of the first steps in fungal conservation is determining which species are thriving and which are rare or declining, right? We never have enough resources, never enough money, enough time, enough people to just randomly choose fungi that are in need of conservation action. It's really important that we assess the conservation status of species. And many funding and conservation organizations use this thing called the IUCN Red List to prioritize action. <clears throat> the problem is that the conservation status of the vast majority of fungal species has not been assessed. And this has hindered including fungi in conservation discussions, access to funding programs, policy decisions, and conservation action. We're making progress. But still, it's a challenge. So only about 151,000 of the recognized species of fungi, remember I said there was about two to four million, only about 151,000 have been actually fully described and recognized by science. So it's only about 4% of the estimated fungal diversity is known. But of that, only 625 have been assessed and published on the IUCN Red List. So here we have a fraction of all the species have we even recognized yet, been able to identify and know what they are. And of those, only a fraction of those have been assessed. But it's still informative to see what we have from the 625. Uh, when we did this paper last year, it was 597. We've made some progress since then. And so this is a paper done by a number of, um, I led, but a number of, of colleagues. We were really asking, what did we learn from those species that have been assessed? Well, one of the things we've noticed is that there is a high percentage of the species that have been assessed are of conservation need. So 5% are what's treated as critically endangered, another 17% endangered, 25% are vulnerable, and about 10% are near threatened. So taken together, almost 60% of the fungi that we have assessed so far are in need of some conservation action. Now, if that number is correct, that's 60%, it would make fungi among the most threatened group of organisms on the planet. We don't think this number is really correct. We think it's been skewed, it's been influenced by the biases that we've done in the assessments. So if we look at what's been assessed so far, most of the species that have been assessed have been Basidiomyces, have been fleshing mushrooms, um, a few polypores, very few Ascomyces yet, even though that's the most diverse group of fungi. And of the Ascomyces, most of them are lichenized fungi. I know Matt Nelson will be happy with that. Um, and then if we look at geography, this is kind of a confusing slide, but I'll walk you through it. So the first number here is how many species from that um, continent have been assessed, and then how many are threatened. So you can see that for North America, 204 have been assessed, 
36 of them are of a conservation concern. Uh, Europe, 162, 85, South America, and Central America, 149. So not surprisingly, most of the species that we've looked at so far are from North America and Europe. Not terrible in, all, in relative to it, to um, Latin America, but you can see places like Africa, Southeast Asia, um, Australasia, there's almost no data at all from those places. So why? Why have we been so far behind? Why are so few species been assessed? And why from only certain areas of the world? Well, you need a certain minimum bit of information to predict the probability of a species going extinct. First, you have to know kind of where the species occurs, right? What's the geographic distribution of the species? If you don't know that, you can't really do much if you don't know where the species even is or how far it stems. So we need to know something about its distribution. How big is the population? And is that population size changing over time? You can have a really small population that's stable, that maybe isn't as much of a conservation concern as a large population that's drastically declining very quickly. So that idea of population size and change is important. We need some information on its biology, and hopefully we have some idea on its threats and solutions, right? So it's one thing to say that a species is at risk of it going extinct, if we don't know why, and we don't have any idea of what a solution is to mitigate that threat, then it's just a list and we can't really do anything with it. So you need this suite of data, and it's not always easy to get that information on fungi. Now, one of the sources for this, of course, oh yeah, as I said, the challenges for that is that there are a lot of species, right? <clears throat> so lots and lots of species. But even within a particular group, like I work on mushrooms and related fungi, you know, we have all of this diversity, right? We have mushrooms, we have coral fungi, we have puffballs, we have bracket fungi, um, and they're all doing this different ecological things, right? So some are saprobes, some are um, mycorrhizal fungi, some are decomposers. So we have all of this diversity within fungi. We also know that you can have really high site diversity. So this is a, a bit of an older picture, as you can tell by the color of my hair. Um, but um, this was something we were doing back in the late 90s, I think, in uh, China. And we collected a one-tenth hectare plot. That's about a quarter of an acre or so, a typical um, suburban uh, yard side size. And in that one-tenth hectare, in that quarter of an acre, we collected about um, over 100 species of mushrooms, okay, in one morning, long morning, hard morning. But the challenge is that if we went over to the other side of the valley, we'd collect 100 species, many of them different than this 100 species. And if it came back to the same site at a different season, we'd find lots and lots of species, but probably different ones again. So we not only have a lot of variation, but it is um, really high um, diversity at each site. So it's really hard to document that diversity.
The other challenge is the biology of fungi, right? So we've been talking about collecting the sporocarps, right? The, the fruiting structures. But most of the fungus is growing as this thin webs of mycelium, uh, microscopic threads of, of filaments that grow through the substrata. This case, through leaf litter, it could be through um, wood, through the soil, whatever else. And so how do we determine what's going on below ground when the only indication of whether something's there and when it's around is when it's actually sporulating? And we know that every so often when conditions are right, that mycelium will produce a bunch of um, mushrooms. Depending on the species, one mushroom or a bunch of mushrooms, like in this case. And we also know that fungal individuals really vary in size and in length of time they persist. So they can range from this lophodermium, which is a, a, a decomposer fungus. This is a little twig. And so this is the individual here, you know, less than probably an inch in length. And it's only going to persist as long as this branch, once it finally decomposes, it's, it's done. To some of the armillarias, the humongous fungus, that you can actually see where the mycelium is growing from the air. And, you know, these things have been documented to live over a thousand years, an individual. So we have a lot of variation in biology as well. Which makes it challenging. So when you're in the field and you're collecting, um, as we were doing here in, in um, Guatemala, um, one comes across, you know, a mushroom over here and a mushroom over here. Is that the same individual? Or even close together for this Lacaria fibulosa. Is this one individual? Is it two individuals? Is it a hundred individuals? You know, we really didn't have good data to be able to, to make that assessment. So that was the challenges, but there are a lot of opportunities now to address this and we're making progress. One of the things is recognizing the value that's in our historical collections. So these pictures I think are from uh, Royal Botanic Garden Q, but could have taken the same pictures at Field Museum, which has this incredible collection. And these collections, you know, are historical records of species of where they occurred and when they were found. And so the importance of these collections are not just the specimens themselves, but it's also the data that are associated with those specimens. And um, the better the data that are affiliated with those specimens, the more information there and the higher value they have. It's now much easier than when I started out to be able to um, know what's in our fungaria across the US. So back in the day, when I came to, to Chicago in 85, if I wanted to know it was in uh, for a particular group of fungi at New York Botanic Garden, I could have, you know, at that time, written a letter, because um, it's pre-internet, um, 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 uh, pre-mail, um, um, email, um, written a letter to my colleague there 
they could look it up and send me a letter saying this is what I have and then I could write again another letter and say hey can I borrow these and they would send them uh, or I could go make a trip now we have what's called these data portals so for North America we have the Michael portal so this is a web platform that has now compiled all the data from U.S. herbaria, U.S. fungaria, excuse me, um, on their collections. And so you can search on a particular species and know which collections have it, or you can go and look at what's at New York Botanical Garden or what's at Field Museum and get a listing of the species that it holds. So really it's kind of changed um, the way that we can interface with these collections. Oftentimes there's metadata associated with them so we can actually get the, the collection data uh, along with the specimen data. And then those are actually aggregated into a larger platform uh, called GBIF, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. And you can see when I did this as a couple months ago, there's about 22 million records of fungi in GBIF. A couple of things come to, you know, really obvious to see. One is that I'm not sure all of those fungi that are out in the middle of the ocean are actual records. There's, you know, probably air in some of these records. But even so, if you look at that and assume that there's probably some mistakes, you can see there's some areas in Africa that have less records than the Pacific Ocean, right? So we can see that there is really a um, bias is the right word, a skewness of where we have data from in our historical collections. You know, great data from Eastern and Western US, um, parts of Mexico, Costa Rica, um, maybe a little bit of Colombia, and then Western Europe, Australia and New Zealand, Japan, and then the rest of the world is really pretty sparsely populated with data. So we have a lot more information that we need to garner about the fungi and distribution of fungi across the globe. But even so, we're still, we're trying to use those data um, as effectively as we can. So there's been a team uh, in um, the UK uh, Royal Botanical Gardens Q that is developing a program using artificial intelligence to do um, rapid assessments for identifying which species are probably of least concern or probably not of conservation concern. And they developed this program for plants and it works relatively well for plants. We're now trying to do it for fungi. So I've got a grant from the Indianapolis Zoo where we're using the data that's in the North American Michael portal and run it with this artificial intelligence program that we're developing to see if we can identify a number of species that probably don't need to be of, that are probably not of conservation concern, that we can go ahead and concentrate on the other species that may need our help. So it's just getting started. I don't have any data to present on that yet. We're just we're just moving forward on that. But it's it's an exciting, hopefully useful tool that we'll develop. <clears throat>
But as I said, we're working off of historical collections. I mean, there might be things that were collected yesterday, but that's still yesterday is, is, is historical. And we have ongoing field work in various parts of the world that are still discovering new species, discovering new distributions, new information about the species ecology and habitat um, and threats. Um, and so they keep, you know, the field work is adding to our knowledge, but so are um, molecular data. So when I started in 85, that was pre-DNA sequencing. We were just started for my PhD study. I did a little work with trying to look at banding of, of um, allozymes, if any of you know what those are. So basically just isozymes, but we weren't doing DNA sequencing at all. It wasn't developed yet. And one of the first papers that came out and showed the utility of, of DNA sequencing for fungi was this one here by uh, Toby Fableman in 1996, who described Cantharellus tabernensis with uh, sequence data. And until that time, most of the yellow chanterelles in North America were all called Cantharellus siberius. Now, jump up a little bit to, what is this, 2012, so six, 16 years later, we had uh, Matt Foltz come up with this paper where he was using sequence data to identify three new yellow chanterelles within 20 meters of each other in one small county park outside of La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I bring this up because it's important, first off, that that's adding to our understanding of the diversity of fungi, but also importantly, it really has an impact on our understanding of what needs to be conserved, right? So if we accepted Cantharellus siberius to be a globally distributed species, Right? So all these yellow chanterelles are Cantharella siberius. Well, then probably it's not a lot of conservation concern, right? Because if you lost it over here, that's okay. You have it all these other places. But now we know there's over 40 Cantharella species in North America, most of them with very discrete distributions and very discrete ecologies and very discrete habitats. So all of a sudden, what we've gone from something that was not of conservation concern at all to some species that could be of conservation concern. Oh, I forgot to put add this. Yeah. So, you know, so Matt had his study in 2012. Well, we keep adding to that uh, with um, more species being added. This was um, Cantharellus uh, chicagoensis that Patrick led uh, the team on. Um, that we described a number of years ago. So it's springtime almost. So I'm going to go with morels to show another great example of how molecular data has changed our understanding of the diversity, distribution, and potentially conservation status of fungi. So this picture is a little, hopefully you can see it okay. This was if you went to Microbank. Microbank is basically a database that lists accepted names of fungi. 
And if you go to there for Morcella for Morels, it said that there were about 200 names of Morels known from Europe, uh, whatever that is, um, 20, 40, 60, 80. So about 25 species from North America and a few from Asia. So that's what we know from names from what was in our collections. But after they did the molecular data, totally turned that on its side, where it turned out that Asia actually has more distinct species of Morcella than any other place. Um, and that we don't have near the total number, but there is a lot of diversity distributed across the globe. And if we look in North America, if we're in Eastern US, and Western US, turns out most species aren't all the way across the US. There's seven that are just, that are restricted to North America, to Eastern North America, 10 restricted to Western North America, and only five that you could find across both areas. And if we look globally, we see that, hey, each continent really has its own discrete set of species with very few overlapping. So the um, 22 species in North America, 27 in Europe, and 30 species in Asia. So 14 of the 22 species in North America only occur in North America. Again, this is important for understanding diversity, but also understanding the conservation status of these species. But these, again, were, um, well, another new tool that's coming on uh, is what's called eDNA. So if you think of all the microbiome studies that are going on where um, people are, um, you know, scientists are taking the information from, the, from a human gut and running it through DNA and can identify all of the fungi and bacteria that are in the, the gut biome. Well, we're doing that now for biological specimens outside of humans, right? So you can go and take a soil core or take a root sample or a leaf sample and use then um, next generation DNA sequencing techniques to pull out and look at all of the species that are in that sample. So <clears throat> there's a lot of information now, a lot of um, interest in using or exploring the potential of this eDNA technique as a conservation tool. One of the advantages is that it's a relatively, well, that you don't have to have the, the fungi sporulating at the time. You can go in and take a soil core. It'll tell you what's in that soil core, whether there's mushrooms there or not at that particular time. So it has the potential to really change um, and enhance what we know about fungal distributions. And so it's being used now effectively in a couple of projects. Um, this one is using um, eDNA to assess the success of restoration work in these um, um, woodland uh, um in these uh, projects in um, South, I think it's Wales. Another study 
has been able to really reveal high soil fungal diversity and variation in community composition among Spanish cliffs. So really documenting that there's a lot more fungi there than we could see if um, in one, say, collecting trip. There is a problem with these data for conservation, though, is that it will, I, it will, I, it will capture and document a species there from just a spore or a fragment of a mycelium. And so it may document species that are outside of its range um, that have landed there um, serendipitously and really will not become established and persist. <laughs> and think of um, if you followed what's going on with the um, Asian carp, you know, um, there's the electric fence along the, the river, and there's concern that the Asian carp is going to get into Lake Michigan. So they're doing a lot of eDNA testing, and they'll occasionally find eDNA of the carp in on the other side of the electric fence. But the thought has always been so far that it is uh, sperm or scales or something else, because there's been no detection of an adult carp on the other side of the fence, right? So these data, these these uh, tools are very, very sensitive. And so we've got to figure out how we use these data to really understand where the fungi truly are, where they're functioning, where they have become established. But we're getting better and better data. And this particular study that just came out um, last March really talks about we need to do both. We need to continue doing field studies and include in these field studies, also add these eDNA studies and integrate the methodologies to really um, move our understanding of fungal distributions forward. So that's kind of the science side of, not science side, kind of the technological changes that have been ongoing and really exciting stuff. But because fungal diversity and distribution is so still poorly documented, there is still a great opportunity for discovery. And so the other area that's really being developed is engaging citizen scientists, community scientists, amateur mycologists, whatever you want to call it, as um, really our best hope for documenting at scale what species are occurring, where and when, and how these patterns are changing. So this is nothing new. Um, this is a picture of Charles McElvain. If any of you have ever used 1,000 um, North American fungi, which is kind of a, one of the early North books in North America on fungi, um, Charles McElvain was a retired army officer who in retirement basically traveled um, parts of the Eastern US uh, collecting mushrooms, um, eating them, and documenting you know, their taste and whatever else. He knew Amanitas and whatever else. So he knew what he was doing. He did not die of mushroom poisoning, um, but he then wrote them up into his book, 1000 North American Fungi. And you'll see that almost all subsequent books in North America kind of use some of his data on edibility, um, just kind of keep repeating what, what Charles McElwain said way back when. 
trick is that Charles McAvane had an iron stomach. So some of the things he could eat without problems uh, may cause um, some problems for people. But anyway, it's an example of a major contribution that a citizen scientist, a community scientist, an amateur mycologist made to mycology. And of course, we've got these wonderful organizations, right? We've got North American Michael Association. I'll talk about Fundus in a little bit later. Uh, many, many um, um, local clubs, including one that my favorite is the Illinois Mycological Association. And so these organizations have been around for quite a while, for NAMA since the 1960s, and for um, IMA the last 50 years really engaging, helping document what's going on. But we've really changed the, I would say, the rigor and the value of the data that the clubs are able to collect and provide to the, to the conservation community. So when I got here um, in 85 and shortly after that, I started a program called the Survey of Northern Illinois Fungi, Sniff, Wake Up and Smell the Fungi. I thought it was really cute. Nobody else seemed to really like it. But one of the best things about Sniff was that early on in the process, I hired this young guy right out of um, a postdoc named Patrick Leacock. And I uh, hired Patrick to uh, kind of run Sniff and really take it on. And so um, that was one of the smartest things I ever did. Um, and so that really started our redocumentation of the fungi of the greater Chicago region. But early on when, with SNF, what would happen is I asked our club members to go out and I'd come into work at, I was at the field museum at the time, I'd come into work at the field museum and there'd be bags of mushrooms just kind of all thrown in the bag. Uh, no data, no, not much. I might say where that was collected, but that was about it. And so we've come a long way from that kind of, um, how do we say it? Um, un, less rigorous way of collecting to opportunities that now where people have the opportunity to be engaged. And we know that these, community science programs, these citizen science programs can have a major, major impact. So this is some data from Tom May at Royal Botanic Garden, Victoria, which is the um, group that runs Fungi Map, which I'll talk about in a second. So here's the typical frequency distribution of specimens in a fungarium, okay? So most of the species are known from one to maybe four, eight, specimens, right? Very few number of specimens. So you can't really say much about their distribution, change in their distribution over time, their abundance or anything from those few number of records. When he looked at from the fungi map target species, most of them have lots of records. So all of a sudden by having community scientists going out and recording their findings in a organized fashion was able to see that, hey, most of the records are 100, 200, a couple of cases over a thousand. And once you have that kind of number, you can actually start talking about what is the distribution of this species? Um, what is the habitat for this species? Um, 
you know, do we see any change over time in the distribution and the abundance of that species? So, you know, um, community scientists can have a major impact on our understanding of the distribution and abundance and ecology of fungi. And so example from um, fungi map, here was for this Amanita astroviridis and the, where did it go to? If I remember correctly, the yellow dots is what was known from the fungarium specimen. So it was known from three records. If you go to Royal Botanic Gardens, well, to go to any of the fungaria in Australia, you'd see there are three records. And the purple dots now are what were obtained through fungi map activity. So it's not, it's still not abundant. It's still not widespread throughout the country, but there are a lot more records and extension of records even into Tasmania, up the East Coast and everything else. So really has a major impact on not just the numbers, but the distribution of these fungi. <clears throat> Another great example of the success of community science programs is the Lost and Found project that was run through Royal Botanic Gardens Q um, and the British Mycological Society. And what they did was they identified was roughly a little over 100 species, I think, that were thought to be either very, very rare or had been extirpated, had been lost from the Great Britain, right? Hadn't been recorded for a long period of time, was not clear whether the species even still occurred on the islands. And what they did was after a couple of years of study, they got 1,400 new records. Some 77 of these, um, trying to remember, 77 of the um, targeted species, um, about 200 voucher specimens of the, the lost and found species. And, or, yeah, so they got 77 of the lost and found, 77 of the 100 they found records of, about 200 samples that they were actually in a voucher and another 350, so bycatch, uh, that they were able to get. So very successful. And so what they did was they found that a number, as I said, 77 of the species were still there in the UK. But there were a number of species, these that were here, which I forgot the number, 29, um, have not been recorded yet which after five years of really extensive survey, really indicates that these might be lost from the islands. And then there were a couple of species, these four that they called Lazarus species, because they hadn't been recorded for 50 years and they found a couple of records. Um, in North America, or in, well, no, I should say globally, uh, one of the big things that are, <coughs> opportunities that people have to, um, add information about fungal distribution and diversity is through iNaturalist. I know that many of you um, um, post iNaturalist. And so I just looked at this before I got on. And currently there's about 8 million observations of fungi, 19,364 species. There's what boggles my mind over 607,000 people have posted images. 
607,000 people. There's, you know, a handful of mycologists in the U.S. that actually do fungal biodiversity studies. And yet there's 607,000 people in the world that are posting images. Pretty amazing. But we also know that the quality of these data aren't always great, right? And it's the quality of the observation and the amount of metadata, the amount of associated data varies greatly. And what we need is high quality observations um, with information of the basis for documenting diversity, distribution, plant habitat associations, etc. So the one of the organizations that I'm involved with, which is the Fungal Diversity Survey, Fundus, is really trying to engage community scientists in generating data for conservation assessments and to advocate for conservation action. So two of the projects that we're involved with that are doing this is the Fungal Diversity Database and some rare challenges. So the diversity database really is encouraging and facilitating high quality observations. It's being done primarily through iNaturalist, but the site provides instructions for taking quality photos, suggestions for the needed metadata to be included. And there is a team of triagers who can help and look and do identifications. And also something really cool comes up they'll go out and reach out to the person that posted to see if they can get more information about it. And this is an older slide, but at the time there was about 103 observations. The other big project that Fundus is involved with are these rare challenges where identified um, <clears throat> a number of species that were thought to be rare and potentially threatened and just turning people loose to try to collect data on those species, compile those data, and, and use that information. So there's a lot going on now that's allowing us to do a better job of documenting fungi, documenting the distribution, documenting their abundance, using these, those data to hopefully enhance and allow us to do a lot more red listing. But I just want to end here in my last couple of minutes to say that red listing is not the end to the process. Really, it serves the start of the mycological community and uh, International Union for Conservation of Nature to build upon the results and enthusiasm and contributions of the broader conservation community to significantly move fungal conservation forward. And so what we really need to do is we need to continue doing red listing. We need to know what fungi are in need of conservation. But we also have to put this data to work. And that's going to take collaboration between community scientists initiatives and the mycological community and the conservation community. So, you know, really trying to work more collaboratively between the different um, uh, people collecting the data and those that are analyzing the data, uh, provide more data for red list assessments but also work to get conservation uh, NGOs and governments to recognize fungi and power with animals and plants and get um, um, advocate to get rare and threatened fungi on lists and management plans and also develop um, projects to um, effectively mitigate against threats and um, work to, to maintain the, the, the health of individual species populations. So just a couple of things that have been going on. We talk about the recognition of the importance of fungi. It's there, like I started out talking about all these wonderful things that people are talking about fungi all the time now, but it still needs to be higher. 
right? We're to the point now that conservation groups and government ministries now recognize the importance of fungi. But they too often say they cannot afford to include them in their activities, saying that there's not enough money, time, or people to do it. So they say it's important, but sorry, we can't do it. And so we need to continue to work to raise awareness of fungi so that we get to the point that they recognize that they cannot afford not to include fungi if they just succeed in their work. And one way we're doing this is trying to really change how people talk about biodiversity. So this whole idea, some of you heard about it, it's the three Fs, fauna, flora, and fungi. Um, or anytime we talk about biodiversity, it should be animals, fungi, and plants. And really trying to make sure that fungi are explicitly mentioned when we talk about biodiversity. And so we've made some progress. Um, one of the big uh, NGOs, Rewild, and then also IUCN um, Species Survival Commission, which is really the biggest NGO, um, actually recognize this and they now are very clear in always using, um, including fungi explicitly in anything they write about. Uh, we're starting to see some countries starting to do this. Chile was the first country to pick it up, but some other countries are now starting to do that in their language. We're not there yet in the US. Um, I've got a series of conversations coming up starting next week and the following week with various state biodiversity heritage programs that are part of NatureServe, uh, trying to understand what it would take to get them to be, uh, to include fungi in their work, to engage with the mycological community and move that forward. So hopefully we'll see more progress in the US, but the US is definitely not a leader in this field at the moment. And then just a couple of fun projects that are going on just to finish up. So here's something I was contacted by um, um, a, a person who runs a, um, manages a, um, a park in Mozambique. And he's working with this women's group to uh, develop sustainable harvest practices for a number of fungi that they've been collecting. And so uh, really teaching them about sustainable harvest, thinking about um, better ways to manage their collecting to ensure that they have long-term um, resource to these to these fungi that they then market for uh, food and for additional income. In Australia, there's this species that was critically endangered and called Hypocreopsis amplectans, uh, which was only known from a handful of sites, very, very few records. And so after it was listed, after it came out of the red list to show that it was critically endangered, they were able to get some more funding for it. And now they found a number of new populations on this small Austral Australian island. And so this is an example of how after we recognize that something is in danger, effort can be put forward to see if there are more of them out there, uh, what, what we can do about that. Uh, another example of what happens after we red list something and get the recognition that a species is in need is with lojo. This is a species of ectomycorrhizal, it's a bolete, um, endemic to Chile. It only occurs in southern Chile, occurs with nothophagus species. And 
one of the big challenges with this was of over-harvesting and it was recognized as endangered. And so by using that information, they were able to get funding to put together a collaboration between their national forestry institution, a university, and an NGO, a Fungi Foundation, to create a series of projects engaging the local community, the Mapuche Indians, in this work to both understand to more sustainably harvest, but also they are trying to cultivate the species and add that back into the soil. So they're increasing the size of the population to try to maintain so that the population will persist uh, into the future. And then lastly is a project I haven't followed up on. It, it happened a couple of years ago, so I need to follow up on it, but I thought it was cool. And this was some work in the US um, that was looking at um, how do you do successful forest management and recognize that fungi are part of the ecosystem and these resources are part of the need for the local community. So here was a project where the Forest Service wanted to do some thinning, significant thinning, uh, fire breaks, all this stuff, to try to reduce the chance of, of major fire. And the target species from a fungus standpoint was the white matsutake, Tricholoma magnifolari. And so what they did was they had this project goals to use the best civil culture and fuel reduction activity to limit uh, the loss from white scale fire, but they wanted to make sure they maintained as much as possible sustainable conditions to continue the long-term harvesting of fungi in the areas. And so what was exciting about it is they worked again with local folks, in this case with the Northwest Forest Worker Center, to understand you know, what their needs were, what the economic value were for these species, things like that, and work with them to do this. And so they tried a different size of clear cutting, different size of thinning, and what they were able to do is find something that allowed them to meet their goals for reducing fire load and still maintain about 70, over 70% of the pre-treatment frequency of the, of the fungus. So wasn't perfect, but by taking this into account, they really did a lot to ensure that the fungi in these forests were being managed appropriately. So just going to end on that and just say, you know, the conclusion is that work remains, lots of it, to document fungal diversity, the distribution patterns, the conservation status of individual species, and projects that we need to mitigate their threats. Much of the needed data are observational. What occurs where and when and how these patterns are changing. And so it's the coordinated citizen science projects integrating with the full range of people interested in fungi, from beginners to employed mycologists and museum professionals who are needed to provide these data. So as we move forward, hopefully everybody who's interested in fungi can work together and we move these um, issues forward. So just want to thank you for that. Um, and that's, I'm happy to take questions or um, comments or anything like that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Nancy Seymour said, how are the genetically modified trees planted in the U.S. forest 
by living carbon going to impact fungi? There is a lot of work going on now, trying to ensure that all of these large scale tree planting initiatives, whether in the US or other parts of the world, recognize that the fungi, that the trees aren't living there independently. They're part of the system that is um, involved with the, the microbial community in the soil, the fungi, the bacteria, the other critters. And so there's a lot of work going on trying to ensure that the right tree is being placed in the right place. Many of these large scale uh, reforestation projects in parts of the world aren't successful. They plant out millions of trees. And if they went back a couple years later, they'd see most of those have died because they weren't using the right tree. They weren't recognizing that they need to match up the trees with the natural mycorrhizal fungi that are there. Uh, so, Matt, no. Oh, sorry. No, that's fine. So that's what's going on. So these are genetically modified trees. I don't know if they're going to, how they're going to impact, uh, you know, if they change how they're leaking, you know, how much carbon they're providing to the fungi, it could change. Um, to change their root structure, it could modify what fungi are involved, but I don't know enough what they, how they've, they've modified the trees to make that prediction. But there's a possibility it's going to change the microbial community. Um, Matt Nelson said, Paris, or acquired, parasites are often viewed in a negative light. Is the IUCN, whatever that means, maybe you could explain, <laughs> and other conservation organizations agnostic to the nature of the interaction, or does it view parasites as different from mutualists or sapotropes? Okay, first of all, IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the largest conservation organization on the planet. Um, and uh, what is uh, the, the group that's, that's um, driving a lot of the, say, redwood list work and conservation work. So that's what IUCN is. Um, yeah, Matt, you're right. Um, it's a challenge. Passages are challenges, right? So they get a bad rap. You know, when I, when I talk to my ecology class, I always talk about that <clears throat> pathogens are bad when they get out of control, right? So if you have a natural forest with natural pathogens, you need you need uh, good age demographics. You need older trees, younger trees. You need some trees to die to open up light gaps to allow younger trees to come up. So pathogens play a super important role in that. Where we get into problem is when you have um, miles and miles of one species of planted tree, and then you get an invasive pathogen that comes in, wipes them all out, that's bad. And so they get a bad rap. So I would say that a pathogen is not always bad. They actually are super important in um, to maintain good ecology. Um, so I think for the most part, uh, we don't look at pathogens any different than non-pathogenic fungi or mutualistic fungi. But at the same time, uh, for you know, if you've got a, a really bad health issue, one of the examples I use sometimes is that um, I don't know that anybody is doing any work to increase the population of mosquitoes that farm that cause malaria. 
right? You know, I don't care if they become threatened. We're going to work to make them more and more threatened. And so I think there are some pathogens that are bad guys, but other pathogens we treat as, you know, the the convention of biological diversity doesn't say only good fun, only organisms that are beneficial to humans um, should be saved. It says everything should be saved. Uh, in the permaculture gardening farming movement, I haven't heard or noticed a lot of thought about the microbiome. Mm. It's mostly about larger plants. Could deliberate education and consideration of mycological interactions with these spaces benefit the stability of a permaculture plot? Wow. Yes, <laughs> I would say, yeah. Um, in some cases, the by the, you know, the very process that have been developed is ensuring that there's a good, you know, it's it's being done um, just by the process that's being done, uh, right, without actually thinking about it. Um, but yeah, uh, there are, there is work at that process to see if we can enhance the process, uh, enhance the protocols for, um, for, um, making it all work better yeah okay um apologies for the off-topic question but i'm interested in native plants but just barely stopped myself from ordering lion's mane plugs from washington state today from fungi perfecti to grow in the vegetable garden i'm assuming that there are local mushrooms and that's best not to order from across the continent yeah, um, I personally do not and would not grow some of these exotic fungi. So one of the invasive species that are now becoming really common is the is it the golden uh, oyster? I think that's the name of it. Uh, that we seem to see pop up all over the place. That has escaped from cultivation. And is now we're finding it with quite a lot of frequency in various parts of the US. We don't know yet what the negative implications are, but it's probably replacing some of the negative, some of the native species. And so there could be uh, bad implications. So um, yeah, somebody had sent me a kit with a bunch of species from Western US. And I decided not to use them so that's my view wow that's fascinating because just in the last few weeks i people been showing their kits and what they've been producing i never thought about what you're just talking about um but well wasn't it the um shiitake also kind of jumped the fence yeah i guess this well i don't know i mean I, I at least haven't seen a lot of shiitake. Patrick, I don't know if you know of shiitake escaping, um, but um, I, I do grow shiitake. So that, that's one thing I do have, I do uh, take the break on, just because I don't think of anything local, but that's, um, you know, I don't know how well it, it escapes. Um, I only know of supposedly one confirmed case in California of shiitake in the in the wild <clears throat> yeah. we um found it up at the uh 
the Nature Museum on the north side of Chicago one year, but um, when we looked further, there were plugs in that log, so. Yeah. So I think you use your judgment. Just use your best judgment is all you can do. But for the golden oyster, um, it would be great if if you find it um, to post your photos on iNaturalist because that's one thing we're liking. We um, that we're interested in documenting the spread and frequency of it um, because it only showed up near Chicago a couple years ago. Uh, what other mushrooms are potentially invasive in the Chicago area? Anything that will overwinter here could could do that, right? So, so you brought up the boy, the lion's mane. We do have lion's mane here, um, but genetically, it's probably somewhat different, right? Our lion's mane is adapted to our winters and to our climate. Um, from West Coast may have, you know, something else. So will it be as, if it replaced the native genetics, what are the implications for that? I don't know, you know, we don't know, but there is that possibility that there could be some negative implications. Now, somebody did mention Field and Forest, you know, is a mushroom growing supplying company out of Wisconsin uh, for those looking for a local-ish supplier, but, you know, I'm not familiar enough with their their materials. Are they um, propagating stuff that maybe shouldn't be for this region? I have no idea. I, yeah, I need to look at it more. I know that's where my shiitake plugs have come from. So um, I've, I've taken that as a, but I haven't delved into it enough to know exactly where they're getting their spawn from. Okay. Um, now, this was a question of, that was really answered by Patrick, but nonetheless, there's going to be people who listen to the podcast later or may not be familiar, but is there an avenue for citizen scientists to get involved on the technical side of things, analysis, ML, artificial intelligence development for the public research projects? Yes. So, you know, depending on what your interests are, right? So I primarily talked about citizen science projects by providing information on diversity and distribution, but there are a number of um, citizen scientists now that are doing sequence work. They have their own, you know, DYI sequence lab in their, in their house and add into our understanding of, of relationships between them. There are others that are doing, you know, what is it, um, blanking out the name, that are looking at new uses for fungi um there's all, all kind of work that that people can be helping with there's also always opportunities if one is a big computer geek or something like that to you know offer your your expertise to see if they'd be of help in some of the data analysis projects and things like that so yeah you don't have to limit yourself just to collecting and posting nine naturalists there are other things that one can do to really be of help um, so I just go hunting and take lots of pictures. How can I help as a general person that just likes to go into the woods and look and collect mushrooms? What is one action I could do to help? Post images on iNaturalist and work <laughs> on making sure that you're, you know, that you keep enhancing uh, the quality of your images. And if you can, you know, put not just the image, but 
put some data on there. You know, where did you get it? What was the forest type like? Uh, was it found on wood or on the soil? Or, you know, so those kind of information that you can add to your iNaturalist posting. How do you determine whether something is a different species versus existing genetic variation within a species? What tips it into this is a new species as opposed to these are different expressions of the same species? Wow, you've hit on it. We can have a whole class on, on species concepts. Um, there's a lot of um, discussion in the community about what makes something a new species. When is different different enough? What kind of differences are there? So there's um, there are various analytical tools that we use to try to um, make those decisions. So sometimes it is sequence variation. You know, it's there is um, this sequence is different enough from this sequence by a certain percentage, so we'll accept that. Otherwise, we might run it through a analysis that looks at um, evolutionary relationships. They come out that there is a different group in the in the family tree than the related species. So there are ways to do it, but there is um, oftentimes they are hypotheses and there's not good hard and fast rules, I would say. Um, do fungi live underwater? Yes, there's a whole number of, of aquatic fungi, um, both freshwater and marine. And some of the coolest fungi that have been found in the last 10, 15 years are deep sea fungi um, with some of these, you know, deep sea submergibles going down. What do you think is uh, decomposing these uh, whales and um, um, that fall to the bottom of the sea? So there's been fungi found, I think it's 10,000 meters. Um, they've extracted fungi. Many of those we only know from the DNA, right? Because you don't collect anything, but again, through this eDNA sample, this environmental DNA, uh, we've been finding fungi in deep sea. Um, okay, also regarding helping with projects with technical skills, is there a good place to go looking for or finding those projects? I would contact um, Fundus, which is the Fungal Diversity Survey, so it's fundus.org, or NAMA. There's projects through NAMA. Um, uh, you know, check with you know your local club. In this case, I'm. I don't know if there's anything besides document. Not besides. That's some. That's super important. But if there are additional projects in addition to documenting the region's biodiversity, um, there it looks like. Patrick put up the, the NAMA um, a link to, to see some of the projects there. So there are a number of places that you can find ideas and join groups that are doing work. So we may have run out of questions for the moment, but what is Greg Mueller and his lovely wife planning to do when they do with this life called retirement? Continue working on fungi. Um, you know, um, <laughs> Some diversity studies, um, you know, I'm going to continue as my role. So I now chair the Fungal Conservation Committee for the IUCN. I also chair the Mushroom Bracket and 
puffball specialist group for IUCN. So got a lot of work to do from um, the conservation work. Um, I'll probably um, be more active in the Illinois Plant, uh, Plant Society as well. Um, so yeah, there's plenty to keep me busy besides traveling and eating well, I hope. You know what? I think it's, it sounds like a, a good life. Uh, I'm not quite sure this is for you, but I'll add it anyway. Uh, someone please jog my memory. There is someone working on a major sequencing and data interpretation project out of Indiana who said he'd be happy for people to reach out to him. Oh, I know who that is. That's Stephen um, Russell. Yep. I believe he presented to NAMA recently. And while looking that link up, I found this you might be interested in. He did a program with us. In fact, we had him scan his camera around the room to show us his home herbarium in his lab. Yeah. Okay, Greg, I think we might have fit. Oh, I don't, yes. Yes, everybody's saying thank you, which is true. And uh, it's been a delight to know you all these years, but I think it's not the end. It's just, you'll just not have a... Uh, 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 you're not going to have to do any managerial overseeing anymore. That's the idea right now. If I'm just, I've enjoyed being an administrator, but I look forward to just being a mycologist again. So yeah, Going that's great. And I look forward to continued interaction with the with uh, Illinois Mycological Association, especially as long as you have a um, virtual option. I'm not going to be able to get up to um, Niles for the meetings very often, but um, I can definitely log in remotely. I consider Zoom the silver lining to the pandemic or being able to do these kinds of things. It's just fantastic. Well, all right. Thank you. We'll see you sure. another day. Okay. Bye. Good night, now. everybody. See you next month. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.